Cafeteria is a food venture dedicated and devoted to reimagining and revitalizing Ashkenazi cuisine. We've been at this project since 2012 when we launched, and we approached this mission on a number of levels. We produce an artisan handmade gefilte fish for Passover that you can buy in stores or online. And we also lead tons of cooking classes and workshops across the country. And we also spend time in lots of other kitchens doing pop-up restaurants and special dining events. So there's a little bit of stuff you can purchase at home, and then there's a lot of immersive experiences we like to provide. And it's all meant to inspire the next generation of Ashkenazi cooks uh, and our own generation to, to get back in the kitchen and reconnect with Ashkenazi food. Hi, and welcome to The Big Schmear, the podcast celebrating Jewish food, culture, and history. I'm your host, Beth Schenker. I hope all of you at home are healthy and hanging in there during this serious time of health concerns. While I want to continue to provide you with engaging and entertaining new episodes about Jewish food, I also think it's a good time to provide information that might push the envelope a bit on the focus of the podcast. The bottom line to all this is continue to cook healthy and flavorful food for yourself and anyone else that might be sharing food at your table over the next few weeks. It's just what we all need a lot of right now. And in this vein, I have invited back Liz Alpern from Gefilteria. She and I did an episode together from the Detroit Jewish Food Festival a few years ago. And now I have the opportunity to add her Gefilteria partner, Jeffrey Yaskowitz, to the conversation. Hi, and welcome, Liz and Jeffrey, to the Big Schmear. Hi, Beth. So great to be here. And we're in three different locations, and so we're being very health conscious, but also thought it was important for the three of us to be able to have this conversation together. So I thought maybe we'd start, and if you could give me a brief, just a brief summary about what Gefilteria is and and how you guys got started with this. Sure, I'll take this one, Beth. You know, Gefilteria is a food venture dedicated and devoted to reimagining and revitalizing Ashkenazi cuisine, and um, and so we've been uh, we've been at this at this project since 2012 when we launched, and we approached this mission on a number of levels. We produce an artisan handmade gefilte fish for Passover that you can buy in stores or online, and we also lead tons of cooking classes and workshops across the country. And we also spend time in lots of other kitchens doing pop-up restaurants and special dining events. So there's a little bit of stuff you can purchase at home, and then there's a lot of immersive experiences we like to provide. And it's all meant to inspire the next generation of Ashkenazi cooks uh, and our own generation to, to get back in the kitchen and reconnect with Ashkenazi food. So I'm going to jump in for just a second and say that because I got to experience uh, one of those in-person demonstrations, you captured all of that in your time. I mean, you made it feel like I could do this stuff, which, which is really great because I'm, I'm not a trained chef by any means. And anyway, so the, the uh, excitement and the energy level was really fantastic. Jeffrey, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how the two of you got together to even do this project. Uh, yes, I'm uh, happy to jumping on that. But at first, I want to say, Beth, I'm so happy to hear that you had a great experience uh, with uh, the demo that Liz made in Detroit. And I would just want to say that most of the people who kept this tradition alive for generations, many of the homemakers and home cooks 
we're not trained chefs either. So it is all within reach for many of us. So Liz and I were both working in the food world independently. Uh, Liz was uh, working actually with uh, the cookbook author, Joe Nathan, uh, who famously has written many Jewish cookbooks. She was working on a food truck, working in a pastry kitchen. And um, I was working, I was actually importing um, gourmet products from the Negev Desert with small growers. I had been working as a, a pickler on an organic farm and writing about food and culture. And the two of us connected to the food world. And we connected around a time when there were a lot of articles, and unfortunately there still are many of these, about delis that are closing, about potentially a loss of an important part of Jewish culture, specifically Ashkenazi Jewish culture, so uh, Jews of uh, Eastern and Central Europe. And, um, and the two of us grew up with this culture. We grew up in the New York area. We grew up going to the Jewish delis, and we talked about it. We both felt um, a love and appreciation for Masabal soups and pastrami sandwiches, and also for the you know foods cooked for the holidays by our own families. And uh, we didn't feel like many other people cared that much about this tradition. It felt like we were the only ones. And so we, um, we began uh, talking, and when Liz moved back to New York, we began cooking together, and, um, and we sort of hatched the plan. We figured, let's start with the most difficult, uh, hardest food to convince anyone to eat, which is gefilte fish, <laughs> uh, the food that might be considered the laughing stock of the, the Jewish food world. And we said, if we can make people think the filter fish was cool, if we can make it with better sourced ingredients, we can make it, you know, gourmet, then we can do anything. And, uh, and we've been, you know, working in the food space, doing Jewish food renaissance work ever since. So I'm, I'll jump in again and just say that I, um, I did make your, one of your gefilte fish recipes. I sort of remembered my, my mother making gefilte fish and it was this huge ordeal I can't, it must have been for Passover. And so I decided to try it with much trepidation. And much to my delight, it wasn't a huge ordeal. It was very doable and it was great. So, again, you know, a wonderful surprise. Thanks to you, both of you, for, um, f- for bringing back this food and um, making it easy for home chefs to and home cooks to experience that history of our own food in our own house. So that's that's really cool. And I also think that the strengths that you both brought to this company were very interesting, different, and um, a great blend. And so maybe you could talk just a little bit about if you have individual specialties that you kind of bring to the company, and I seem to remember that, and Jeffrey, you just mentioned this in passing, that you were doing pickling, but I feel like that was one of those things you really focused on, at least early on in the company, and maybe you could talk a little bit about that, and Liz, I'm sure there's things that you are focusing on as well that people would be interested in, in learning more about. Great. Well, Liz, do you want to jump in on this? Yeah, I'll jump in. So I, I think that the first thing is that that entrepreneurship is an all-hands-on-deck kind of endeavor, right? So anybody out there who's listening who's ever started a company knows that when you start a company, you're every branch of the company, right, in the beginning at least. And uh, and so you also have to learn really quickly. And I think that while Jeffrey and I both came in with 
particular fluency in different topics. Like I, you know, I was very comfortable with baking and Jeffrey was our master pickler. Um, and, uh, you know, we both had done some food service and uh, an actual back of the house work. But, but the idea is that in a lot of ways, we really, you, you learn so much on the fly and it brings out some of the skills that you maybe have naturally and also some of the skills that you've slightly developed. So, uh, one of the things that I think a lot about is that, you know, I, I, I'm not sure I really knew that I had a complete and utter head for logistics. I had done a fair bit of planning of, of events before, but turns out that that is a real strength that I bring. The logistics of event planning also translated to the logistics of shipping and delivery and production and running a kitchen, right? And those are things that uh, I might have had a whisper of before, but having leaned into the entrepreneurial endeavor, I really got to develop those skills. And so even today, uh, I've always got my eye on the calendar. I'm sort of obsessive about scheduling and uh, and making lists. And that's just something that has developed over time. Yeah. And I'll just add, uh, you know, because we do a lot of different kinds of things, there's uh, a lot of different kinds of lists. And Liz really is a master list maker. Uh, I think what you, Jeffrey. You're a very good listener, too. I have oh, to say. Liz. Oh, stop. <laughs> you, are, you are. You are. I will say, uh, I think what's interesting, you know, since, uh, you know, Liz and I have been working together for a long time, is just sort of how we also play off of each other. So, you know, I came in doing uh, working, writing, freelance writer for magazines and newspapers. I still do. And uh, what was very interesting is, you know, Liz and I, we uh, proposed and then wrote and published the cookbook, uh, the Gasolta Manifesto. And it was very interesting kind of working collaboratively on a process. And, uh, and we have different writing styles and different approaches, but it turns out that actually working together uh, would help strengthen uh, a lot of our work. Uh, you know, I tend to be someone who, I like to play a creative role. I like to come up with new ideas. I like to throw things at the wall. Um, and it turns out having uh, someone who is very uh, goal-oriented and very good at keeping things on track and logistically minded uh, really helped rein it in and helped edit things to help actually bring them out. And so together, when Liz and I were working together, we were both come up with different ideas and all that, but, you know, we were able to, you know, kind of uh, put something out into the world that wasn't going to be lost in the realm of idea, but it was going to be quite practical in its application. Uh, we were able to uh, strengthen each other's writings, both bringing our own strength into the process. And uh, that to me was one of my favorite times that we got to work together because we really both brought in so much and Liz having worked with a cookbook author for many years also really brought with her a lot of recipe writing and editing skills that for me I was learning along the way. So I don't want to skip talking about the cookbook but we'll get to that in a little bit. I thought maybe it would be good to just talk about uh, the situation now what's happening in our world now and um, health restrictions and movement restrictions are help uh, are changing hourly, daily. Depends on what part of the world you're in, what part of the country, and so I'm wondering for the two of you who have a company that talks about traditional foods, how are you thinking about Passover this year? What's what's different in the way you're approaching it, both from a business standpoint and maybe also from a personal standpoint? Well, you know, one thing that is the reality, Beth, is that, you know, this is our biggest time of year, and it's been a strange time for us to recognize that for most of us, we will not have the Seder we would originally have imagined um, with, you know, gathering friends and family. That means that 
what we'll be cooking will be different and just the total experience spirit will be different. You know, and from a production standpoint, we um, it's been complicated to produce as much gefilte fish in this in this climate and in this time. And so uh, we had to do as best as we could to keep up with the demand for our gefilte. Uh, there were certainly snafus along the way just because of supply chain interruption and limited labor force and and so it's been a it's been a very very different year for us a scaled back year for us um, and also a year where I think we feel like it's more important than ever to connect to foods that make feel safe and comfortable and at home um, and we've certainly found that our customers have been as enthusiastic as ever about bringing the position to their homes and bringing traditional dishes into their homes so I know I think that message you know that feeling of Leaning on those on those traditional dishes is pretty pervasive in a, in a kind and sweet way. I think it is interesting talking to a lot of people. You know, we, we do a lot of um, workshops and classes and demos all leading up to Passover where we teach people how to make a lot of these traditional foods, where we, you know, connect uh, a, and inspire for the holidays. And um, I think now we're really leaning into a bit more of the uh, the resourceful side of the Jewish culinary history, um, making do with what you have. And for a lot of people this holiday, uh, they're not going to be able to get access to the same cuts of meat or perhaps any meat, you know, uh, for the holiday. They might not be able to get a hold of some of the ingredients they otherwise would have. And so what's really interesting is thinking about, uh, for us, we both took a lot of inspiration from these uh, uh, cooks in small shtetls in Eastern Europe who, you know, managed to weave a whole meal, a tapestry of dishes from, from practically nothing. I mean, dishes, even like the silver fish, it's sort of how far one could stretch a fish to feed a whole family. And uh, we're um, just thinking about, uh, you know, what, what are people's meals going to look like? How can they think, uh, you know, technically from a, you know, with a shtetl mindset, um, make, making sure that, uh, no food goes to waste and flavor is developed in really interesting, innovative ways. And so even if uh, it might not be the same recognizable, recognizable brisket or kugel or whatever your family does, there might still be a, a, a special Jewish DNA to the Passover Seder meal. I love that way of thinking about things. And I think that also is comforting, can be comforting to people at home listening, because it's just important to keep the tradition alive in your own home, however that is for you knowing that you might start a new tradition this year. <laughs> and it could be something great, but hopefully it's just uh, a temporary thing. And it's, you know, we'll just, we'll have to see how it is for sure. And maybe I, this is where uh, some new, new dishes will emerge from because, you know, new flavor pairings uh, will, uh, will come up or there will be um, innovation in a way there has not been in someone's family data. Exactly. I mean, it's what's in your fridge, right? And what's in your pantry. So it's exactly that mindset of thinking way back to the shtetl lifestyle. And um, they couldn't necessarily get to a grocery store. It was what it was growing in their yard or what their neighbors, what they could barter for with their neighbors. And so I think it's a good inspiration. The second this started, I was making making sauerkraut and kombucha and I definitely had Passover on, on my mind thinking, I don't know what, what's going to be in a couple of weeks. So I want to make sure I've got some fermented vegetables so that I can still have vegetables on my plate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I was actually quite grateful that I spent the fall making sauerkraut as was mm-hmm. commonly done back in the days of the shuttle when 
the shtetl smelled like cabbage during the harvest. <laughs> and um, of course, I made gallons and gallons of sauerkraut. I, I had so much. And so I was all set, you know, and I mean, obviously, I need to eat more than just sauerkraut. But the point being was that I, uh, I had done the planning in advance to be able to make it through the winter. And, um, and here it was, you know, in both a metaphorical winter and an actual. Yeah. <laughs> and we're glad you're going to eat something more than coleslaw, I mean, uh, sauerkraut. So, um, so that's good. So I just wanted to go back for just a second. And you have a very small company. And so, um, Liz, when you were talking earlier about some snafus in terms of getting, making the product and then getting it out to customers, what kinds of things do you have to deal with in order to do that? It's not like you just mix up a batch of X and then it's suddenly on shelves. Well, you know, Beth, for us, Passover planning starts in January. You know, taking orders and creating packaging and, and mapping out production as early as January. But the truth is that we use very fresh fish, whole fish. We produce it in a kosher facility only after that kosher facility has been transferred over to Passover, cleaned for Passover and prepared for kosher for Passover production. So we plan really early and then lots of things happen in a very short period of time, that short period of time when we can bring fresh fish into our kosher for Passover facility. And, you know, that production time pretty much lined up with the start of the pandemic here in uh, in the New York area. And so, you know, we're, we're always negotiating as a small company to make sure we can get the supplies we need because, of course, lots of large companies, they're going to be buying lots and lots of the resources, right? And we're just a small guy, a small fish uh, <laughs> in, a, in a big pond. And, you know, the other, the other thing is that really making sure that the product can get out uh, to the stores. And we've been lucky enough to, to be able to uh, make all of our deliveries uh, without any difficulty, but certainly is, you know, right now, uh, the directive from the government is to stay home as much as possible. And so we're also trying to be respectful of that and keep that in mind as we consider making more product. And that means more people coming to the facility or more deliveries being made. Uh, so we're just trying to, to follow the guidelines and stay safe. Uh, and also in the buildup to this, we were just making sure that we could get enough material. So it's a complicated time right now. It feels like it's changing every day. Yeah. Yes, it's also interesting because, you know, some places, some stores that are doing a lot of online sales and that are delivering and shipping are uh, are booming right now. And there's a lot of demand, the increased demand. And other stores or other, you know, restaurants that also had a retail section, uh, some of those have closed. And so we're actually finding that, you know, demand is very is uneven. In some cases, a lot more demand mm-hmm. from some of our uh, retail partners of many years. And in some cases... Um, the stores themselves uh, are unable to move any products because they are themselves closed. And so for us, it's also, you know, we, back in January, as Liz said, you know, we, we speak to all of our retail partners that we've been working with for, in some cases, eight years and talk about what their needs are and plan accordingly. And all those plans are out the window. We are unable to, you know, keep up with the, the demand. And the other piece of it is when people are, you know, to be honest, our Gisotovich sells out usually you know, around uh, at the end by Passover, uh, almost you know every year, and we always encourage people to make your own fish, and we give out the recipe, and we love. We do, to be honest, we always tell people it means more to us if you make your own gefilte fish because that is really where we take we draw inspiration from. 
but a lot of people aren't going to be able to access the fish that, that they would need to make a Vilda fish. So um, it's a very uh, uncertain year in terms of, um, you know, like I mentioned earlier, how people are going to be eating and uh, we're just trying to go with the flow. And it shows well that, said. yeah, uh, for sure. And it just points to issues that people are having on an individual basis as well as small companies and even large companies, you know, grocery stores have run out of things and just, mm-hmm. yeah, it's a weird time for sure. So do you have any other advice that you can give people, whether it be not just a recipe, but maybe just uh, other ways to think about their Passover table knowing that that Seder could be for one person, uh, could be for two, it could be for a family, but any thoughts you have to share about that? You know, one of the things that I'm, I'm really thinking a lot about this year is that Passover is the holiday we find that people that we're in touch with are most connected to a very particular menu. So what that means is we hear a lot of, on Passover, we always eat brisket, potato, kogel, and matzo ball soup and gazelle fish. That's the menu every year. And of course, it's done in a particular style, in a particular way. And maybe each person who comes to the Seder has their signature dish. But there's a real attachment and connection to the way things are supposed to be and the way things are. And there's a real nervousness we find about deviating from the norm. Now, that's not everybody, but that is something that you hear about a lot on Passover. And we hear from folks. When we encourage them to bring a new dish home, there's some pushback, right? on Passover. And so I think that this year there's this forced need for change and that that might be really heartbreaking and it might be really sad to not have brisket the way your mom makes it because you're not with your mom, right, this year. Uh, But there's also something really beautiful about that, the opportunity to reimagine what your table could look like and to try something new with what you have at home and to maybe to, to really claim some of the items that feel important on Passover. And maybe that means you're recreating a dish that somebody else always makes, or maybe that means you're bringing something completely new to the table. But I personally feel excited about the possibility of everyone trying something new this Passover, even if it has a bittersweet note, or trying something that you yourself have never made, but somebody else has always made. And, uh, you know, I, I personally, one of the things that I'm thinking about is Parosit. And that my family, we always have a very simple Ashkenazi karosis that's apples and wine and walnuts and some cinnamon. Super simple. And I think I'll have apples on Passover, but I don't know if I'll have any walnuts. I don't think I'm going to have any of the sweet Manischewitz wine or grape juice in my house. So I might just try making uh, a Sephardic karosis with uh, with dates and uh, and the nuts that I do have, which I've heard about for years and I've certainly tasted, but it's not something that's been part of my tradition. So I'm excited to incorporate that because I know I've got those items in my pantry. So that's just something I'm thinking about. Oh, that's great. Yeah, wow, beautifully said, Liz. Yeah, very. I'll offer a few thoughts as well. So one of the things that I actually find so fascinating about cooking for Passover, you know, this is the time of year I think most Jewish people end up cooking foods that are traditional. I mean, it's also the time of year where there are the most constraints, right? So. And that's one of the things that makes Passover so special, that makes it so unique, is that, you know, we have to, you know, for, for generations, people have had to be creative given uh, what the chametz you can eat or the, the leavened goods that they have to table. If you're Ashkenazi and you follow not eating legumes or other kidneyos like rice or corn, you have to think differently about how you construct a menu. 
uh, is there anything more constrained than cooking in quarantine, right? You know, so this is in some ways its own, another kind of constraint. And uh, I think there's a, a beautiful synchronicity there. And uh, I'm curious um, how within those constraints, you know, like Liz mentioned, what a harassment could look like. I was already thinking about how I don't have any walnuts on hand. Um, and I was thinking, of, I do happen to have pecans. And so am I going to have a pecan uh, haroset this year? You know, I do have dates there. So maybe that'll come in. Maybe it'll be a Sephardic Ashkenazi hybrid kind of haroset. So that's uh, definitely uh, one thing I was thinking about. The other thing I was thinking about um, was I had a conversation a few months ago with a, 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 an Orthodox Jewish educator. And she teaches uh, religion to, uh, I think, middle school age children. and we were talking and I was telling him about, you know, work in the Jewish food world. And I used Passover as an example. And I said, if you think about Passover, right, Passover, it's not just about food. In fact, there's a, there's a Seder, there's a story, there's a, a, a history that is being retold. But if you ask most people, especially children, um, but most adults too, what they think about Passover, uh, what comes to mind, they're going to think about the smells and the flavors. They're going to think about the food aspect of it, even though it's not mostly about food. And uh, he couldn't believe it. He didn't believe me. He thought I was crazy. Uh, and, uh, and then he did his own, you know, um, his own little study. He asked his students and it is about the first things that come to mind when they, he asked them about Passover and they all mentioned food. <laughs> and so he came back to me and he said, wow, you know, you're right. Food is much more powerful than I imagined. And so I was just thinking about this Passover what the if it's not going to be the same familiar food the the matzo ball soup in my family the kugels if i'm not going to have access to all that maybe also thinking about what is that storytelling of the puzzle what is the what are the other elements of passover that are sometimes muted because of our love and obsession with eating together and feasting and so um i'm thinking about kind of how my own passover seder uh my smaller one just with my immediate family is going to uh, what meaning and richness we can add to it um, on a metaphorical level. Oh, I love that. That's oh, love great. That. So I don't want to forget, uh, we were we were talking just earlier a little about your cookbook, which I happen to own and it's beautifully laid out and again has some of those fantastic recipes that might sound a little um, unnerving at first, but the way you describe your recipes and how to do things, it, it actually is doable. I wonder if you could talk just a little bit about your cookbook and maybe uh, some special, maybe a behind-the-scenes story about it for my listeners. Oh, Beth, we spent the last, you know, three years talking about our cookbook. We could say a lot about <laughs> it. Um, I think that the key thing to say about our cookbook, which is the name says it all, it's called the Gestilte Manifesto, New Recipes for Old World Jewish Food. And uh, when we started our company back in 2012, we started with a manifesto. We wrote something called the Gestilte Manifesto. And it was a mission statement about um, what we wanted to do, what we, what we hoped to accomplish, which was to revitalize and reinvigorate Ashkenazi cooking, as we said. And the cookbook turned out to be this extension um, of, that, of that mission. It's the, it's the sort of fleshed out version of that mission. Uh, the Gefilte Manifesto that we originally wrote was not just about Gefilte fish, and this book is definitely not just about Gefilte fish, right? There's way more than Gefilte fish in this book. There's about three Gefilte fish recipes out of 125 or something like that total in the book, 
And, and so we really feel like this is, uh, this is our mission statement come to life. Um, and I don't know, I think one of the, one of the craziest parts of, of preparing for it was deciding which foods are, uh, gonna be in and which dishes are, are just a little too out there for folks. And that kind of, uh, decision making was tough. And so we knew we needed to have some of the classics, like a gefilte fish and matzo ball soup and brisket, uh, you know, braised brisket and red wine or white wine. But then there were things like our section on fermented drinks that we knew kind of pushed the limits, right? And so, you know, Jeffrey is a, is a, has a, such a love for fermentation that we, we knew that we had to put something funky in there. And, and, you know, this master fermenter, Sandra Katz, had shared with us a recipe for lettuce sauce, which is a fermented lettuce tonic. And it had been all the rage, I think it was in the 1800s in Ukraine. And uh, no one really knew anything about it these days. And we said, we're bringing back lettuce sauce in this book. And um, <laughs> that was so much fun. But then there were things that were maybe a little bit too weird, like uh, pacha, which is a, jellied calf foot, still eaten pretty commonly in both religious communities and in Eastern Europe today, made with lots of garlic. Um, and we thought a jellied calf foot might be pushing the limits of what the, the consumers of the Filter Manifesto <laughs> are ready to cook. But I think if we do another book, we've got to do Pacha because we get questions about it all the time. Whoa. Oh, all the time. Yeah, our editor really kind of told us we can only have so many your uh, dishes you know we have to keep the greatest <laughs> we range it i'll share two quick stories one one is um when liz and i uh, a bulk of the time that we were testing the recipes of the book we actually lived across the street from each other uh, we allude to it in the book but it doesn't quite capture um, what the year was like we lived in brooklyn uh, in, in crown heights and you know i just have memories of just taking like crock pots full of cholent for her apartment or her coming with a, you know, a, a Pyrex of a Kugel to mine and, uh, and just going back and forth and back and forth because we were making dishes, variations of dishes. Um, sometimes one of us started a, a, a recipe and then needed help how to take it to the next level. And then the other one would uh, add a new spin on it. And then we used, needed each other to taste it. Of um, course. And we even threw a couple of dinner parties while we lived across the street. You know, if we lived farther away, we may have planned a bit better, but because we were so close, we just were, you know, constantly also sharing ingredients and texting. Do you have any, uh, any more almond flour? I'm out. Or, you know, uh, do you have any, uh, any more brown sugar? And so we just had this back and forth, uh, this essentially just like a, a endless back and forth um, between the two of our apartments. And uh, it was a lot of fun. It was, it was somewhat of a magical year. The other thing I'll say is one of the joint dinner parties we threw was a, a goose themed dinner party. So um, while we were working on the book, we got really uh, uh, inspired by Yiddish literature. So um, stories by Sholem Alechem, by Peret, by other uh, Yiddish, Yiddish writers. And um, there's a, a story uh, in Sholem Alechem, uh, Mokhul, the cantor's son, uh, about a woman who raises geese and uh, basically uh, starts in October, goes through Hanukkah, slaughters them, and has a whole business, the cottage industry. And um, and in fact, we actually read so many stories of how important geese were to, to Jewish culture. And so we decided that we were going to find uh, a kosher goose and have a dinner party. There was only one place we could find a kosher goose from, and, the, and that was a, a farm called the Yiddish Farm in Goshen, New York. We reached out to them. We ordered it. Uh, the farmer 
drove the goose down from uh, on the day of our dinner party, and uh, we had the goose arrive Friday morning. It was going to be a Shabbat dinner party. And then we spent the day cooking this goose, and we had 30 people come over, some to uh, my apartment, some to Liz's. We all converged upon Liz's, and, um, and, but it turned out the goose he brought us, we were told it was going to be much bigger, but it was tiny. It was um, like something like eight pounds, and it cost a fortune, and we basically, uh, everyone got a little sliver of goose for the meal, um, but we also had enough goose fat that we were able to fry potatoes up, and we had a whole goose-themed meal, and it was just it was just one of those fun, crazy times that we had a, a goose party in Brooklyn with the only kosher goose that we could find in all of the tri-state area. Oh, I love those stories. I got great pictures in my mind of you guys running back and forth to try out things. I, I love that. That's great. <laughs> it definitely was. So if people want to find your cookbook or if they want to find out more about Gefilteria or your products and how to purchase those, what are the ways that people can do that? Well, there's lots of ways to connect with us. I mean, gefilteria.com is our website. So G-E-F-I-L-T-E-R-I-A, gefilteria.com has information about where to find Gefilte Fish and our cookbook and classes and everything. And the other best way is to follow us on social media, on Instagram, we're just at Gefilteria, Twitter, at Gefilteria, and Facebook, facebook.com slash Gefilteria. So once you Google Gefilteria, you'll find everything you need to know. And if you if you just search in your browser for Gefilte Manifesto, you can find our cookbook on any major bookseller. Well, I want to thank both of you so much for taking time to talk with me today. And I know that the information that you've shared will be helpful to many of the people listening. I wish you both Haksamea Passover and to be well. I've been talking with Liz Alpern and Jeffrey Yaskowitz from Gefilteria. My recording and mix engineer is Steve Robinson. I'd like to give a big shout out to my sisters Marilyn and Sandy for their technical help on this episode. The Big Schmear theme music is performed by Cavatino Duo from their CD entitled Sephardic Journey on the CD record label. If you like The Big Schmear, please don't forget to subscribe and write a review or share a like on my Facebook group page. All this really helps the podcast grow and is really appreciated. If you have comments or questions, I'd love to hear from you. Please email me at beth at thebigschmear.com. And be sure to check out my website, thebigschmear.com, to find recipes shared by my guests. I'm Beth Schenker, the host of The Big Schmear. Thank you for listening and happy eating. Happy eating.